Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 402nd episode of Constructed Chrism. I am your pioneer participant host, Mason, joined by my pioneer loving co-host, Abe, with Spencer out this week. Abe, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about Pioneer for the second time in like a month on the podcast. I can't believe after all of this time of Spencer telling me no one plays Pioneer, no one cares about Pioneer, you telling me no one plays Pioneer, and then look at all these people who had a great time playing Pioneer over the weekend. I've seen more positivity about Pioneer this week on Twitter than I've ever seen about the format since COVID, basically. You know, no inverter of truths around here. No walking lists. Don't need them. Everyone's having a good time. It's awesome. This has really been a dream week. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said about having a format where you can detox from the craziness that is modern and legacy and stuff like that. Uh, Your games get a little scrappy. I had a couple games where I was like, draw, go. I didn't just instantly lose, which is a a new experience in a lot of ways. You ever play Magic like it's 2016 or something? I did. I got to play in two high-level Pioneer tournaments. I was curious what it was like to have me live your dream, where I just got to play big Pioneer event, big Pioneer event, back-to-back. I'm sure you had a great time, so... Let's dive into that a bit. I will. We're talking all about Pioneer today. We had a PTQ, a challenge, a 5K, and the SCG Indianapolis team event with Pioneers, one of the seats. So we have a lot of Pioneer data and uh, events and stuff to kind of talk about. We're going to talk about a lot of the decks and everything that's happened since the Lurus ban just uh, two weeks ago. It's hard to believe it's only been two weeks, Abe, since the Lurus ban happened. I miss that cat every day. That's true. It was a cool cat. But first, we do need to do Always Improving. It is the point of the show. And Abe, how did you always improve this week? This week, I have actually had my Hammer Time coaching really pick up. Uh, I think the Laris Band really motivated people to be like, you know, this is something I was meaning to do, but now there's a whole new world out there that I need to learn about. You know, most of the coaching sessions I do, people are looking to learn about the deck, learn about, you know, the play patterns, sideboarding, uh, really, like, moving through the games properly. But I had a session with um, someone who was a very experienced pilot probably had as many matches if not more than me under their belt just playing leagues on moto they were like i've won challenges with hammer time i'm really experienced but up until the luris ban they, they were coasting They're like yeah we're gonna be good indy's gonna be good luris gets banned and they asked for my help on kind of the deck moving forward and so we had this awesome session where we really just talk shop talk shop for like uh, a little more than an hour about you know, different cards you could play and kind of like what their experiences had been and what my experiences had been and and what we were thinking about constructing as a full 75. You know, you learn a lot from working with other Magic players under any circumstance, you know, playing and seeing things through other people's eyes, but just even talking through the experiences that each of us had had uh, with certain cards in the deck, like they were saying they weren't a fan of the reality chip. I was kind of in agreement of that, but like they were also saying they didn't like the swords, which I had liked. In, in my experience and so it was like kind of getting this fresh perspective of another person who has the same amount of reps as me and has these different conclusions and kind of seeing where they line up and where they don't was just a huge like opportunity for me to learn a ton and level up even further my you know understanding of my beliefs and have this good wealth of knowledge from a source who I who's obviously very credible and who I respect a lot to have all this information and have this feeling and also be coming to me for coaching it was really an awesome awesome experience that was uh, huge on not only, you know, helping them be ready for the weekend in Indianapolis and playing Hammer Time, but also to help me learn even more about this thing that I'm offering coaching on. So it was a really, really sweet, uh, sweet experience. 
That's so awesome. That sounds like a super cool one. I know you had a bunch of other really cool ones that happened too. So I had heard a story. I expected to hear that one here today. And so it was cool to really hear the other one. And it is also a very unique thing where it's like, okay, like camera time is still probably very good. I'm curious what you think about this. I think it was one of the Luris decks that lost the most from losing Luris because it was such a new angle to the deck. Where like Shadow lost can, how controlling it could become, but it can still kind of do that in some ways. Where Hammer lost this thing where it's like, well, my deck kind of floods out and I have some OP draws and this is a way to use a lot of mana and kind of come back into it. Do you kind yeah, of agree the, with that? The redundancy is huge on that too. Like the deck is already trying to do something so hyper-specific that drawing more copies of the hyper-specific cards it already had was really, really good, and, like, an unchecked Luris could go so far in reassembling this kind of two-card combo that was really small, but, you know, a deck like Grixis, there's a lot of other options you can play once you expand your mana cost. Luris is just better than those. And so I think it was really hit the hardest. I think that's, like, hard to figure out how much worse that makes the archetype. I think it definitely messes with how you have to approach some things, but you were the, hurt the least by the deck-building restriction, right? You already only wanted to play a bunch of hammers, Sigarda's aids, pure steel paladins, all your best cards already cost you, but like Grixis can just say, well, I'll just play some Murktide Regents or some other random cards that cost more than more than three and still have the same game plan because their spells were already so cheap. Huge loss. It's very interesting too, just on the side of that, like how much of the Grixis decks are just like staying the same. I, I saw some birds that only had like one or two Murktides or some that just like were almost exactly the same as they were pre-Luris, and they were doing pretty well and stuff. And so it's kind of it's interesting to see just how this kind of ban has implications across all the things. And we're talking about this a lot in Pioneer, where some things have changed drastically and disappeared, and some things have popped up, and some things are kind of the same. Uh, but we'll get into more of that later. My always improving moment uh, has a bit of a story to it. So let's sit down, gamers. So uh, I played in Indianapolis this past weekend. I was supposed to be the legacy seat. My friend Jesse, who I talked about the show during episode 400 with the big improvement moment, was our modern gamer. That was what she was going to do. And then my friend Bob and Cheese, Nick, was going to be our pioneer gamer. And unfortunately, due to the bad weather and Delta being wild, I'm sorry, I'm going to lose this to Delta sponsorship, Abe. I know you were in the late stage talks. So did my boy Bob. I'm a wrong. Southwest guy anyway. Hashtag That's Southwest true. Airlines. Hit That's us true. up. They canceled on Bob, and so Bob got stranded in Atlanta. Uh, the Friday before the tournament. And so we had to get a, a mad rush in order to find a new player and then figure out where everything was going to be. And I ended up on Pioneer from Legacy, which luckily I had put a couple leagues so I could help Bob out if I finished my games early because I felt really good about Modern. Pioneer was something I hadn't played too, too much. Um, and the one deck that I really liked, which we'll talk about later in the show, Just Cassidy, isn't playable really anymore. So it's like, okay, I'm not even helpful. And like, if we play this matchup, what could be going on? Uh, so luckily I played some Pioneer, but I had to find a deck and then figure out what I'm going to do with the deck and everything. And luckily, uh, one of my friends, she had bought Winota decided to play Phoenix. And so I was able to get most of the stuff from her. Twitter helped me out a lot. But the always improving moment came from very quickly trying to consume as much content as I could and consume as much information but I was trying to do it in a way that was like not staying up all night and not ruining my mood, not ruining everything. Because like, you know, I'm in an Airbnb with a bunch of people. Uh, my friend Dom was came into the Airbnb about an hour later, so I only had really an hour before I had someone else there. And then Jesse and Zoe were going to be there, and so it's like I don't really want to ruin this for everyone and myself. So I mean, how much can I really cram and like actually get? So I just tried to think about things realistically, whatnot talk to my friend Pulliam, who'd play the deck a little bit, and just kind of take like the base knowledge and make sure to play extra slow. So the, the always improving moment comes from that, where I had a little bit of distilled information about a bunch of different decks and how to do certain things. But when it came time for the game, I made sure to think extra hard, take that little extra bit of time to make sure that I was eking out all my advantage. Because when you play a deck like Winota, your time is going to like very rarely be the problem. And I got paired against a bunch of bad matchups for the most part and things that you would think would be pretty good against Winota. And I was able to come almost all of it except for the Phoenix matchups. That one felt like my 75 wasn't super prepared for, but that's okay. Whatever. We were happy to be gaming. But I was able to like get really close in a lot of spots where like my teammates noticed that <laughs> they like to point out that my Winotas weren't hitting and that the deck could tell that I wasn't ready to play Pioneer, you know? It's like Winotas <laughs> is not showing up, you're not hitting any humans when you attack. And I'm like, no, yeah, no doubt, I noticed, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twelve whiff, I get it. But I was able to eke out a lot of advantage and basically, you know, play like a bad aggressive mid-range deck in a lot of games and kind of 
just play good magic and go the long well, way. Naya stuff. Exactly. Naya stuff, like Fable the Mirror Breaker and stuff like that. And it's a great reminder that, like, even when your deck's not functioning, there's a lot of percentage points that can be got if you play really tight. And I had a lot of spots where my opponents were beating themselves up because they rushed to make a play or whatever. And a one of my matches where my opponent was rushing to beat themselves up about, we literally finished in four minutes. Like, the our best of three was done. I just crushed them. And it's, it's a like, long well, clock. That, <laughs> you got 46 more. I thought about leaving my teammates to go get food. That, that's where we were at. You have a lot of time, a lot. You just make sure to do that. And it's important because it's so easy when you practice a whole bunch, play a deck a whole bunch, to just autopilot. But you probably shouldn't be doing that. You should be looking to get those extra spots. Maybe not as slowly as I was taking my time in a lot of spots for a deck that, you know, a deck in a format I don't play. I want to make sure not to let my friends down. Uh, an acquaintance now, a friend of mine, Alex, a friend of Abe's, luckily joined our team. And I don't want to let him down. You know, he joined the event for us instead of doing other side event things. And so it's the thing where it's like, hey, there's a lot of percentage points off the table. If I just play good methodical magic, I can get out of this. And, you know, I didn't even cast a Winota until round two. Like, I, I played all of round one with no Winotas across three and so it's a lot of game to be played so make sure to do that yeah i don't know if you feel this way mason i know that it's something that i have felt for a long time and uh i think hayne talked about it a bit when he came on the show uh you know quite a few episodes now that feeling of like when you play a deck for the first time and you don't have those shortcuts established and you don't have like a familiarity with everything you mentioned how you were trying to take the extra step to pay attention to all of the details in the games and be very involved and active in them do you feel like that's something that happens for you more naturally when you're playing a deck for the first time, or that was something you like really need to focus on because you might have, in a position where you were lost or whatever, you might have been like, you know, more inclined to take take a line that just looked the best or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. do you think that that helped you that it was a, a brand new deck to make that easier for you, or do you think that was something that was like a real detriment to you that you had to had to pick it up for? The day I think it was helpful. One of the things we don't talk about a whole bunch on the show. When I play a deck the first time, I take a little bit slower and it happens. And I've played the deck a little bit, I speed up. And then once I've played the deck for a long time, I start to slow down again. Like once I kind of really know what's going on to make sure that like I am actually getting all that eked out advantage. And I shouldn't do that middle part where I'm speeding up for no reason in spots where I don't need to be. Like there are times to play fast and often I don't. For Vegas, when I played Money Pile and got ninth or whatever, I had played like one or two leagues with the deck. Like AB was even joking about like, yeah, it's probably good to play a deck with your league before the Grand Prix, you know? And it's like, yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I felt like I took a lot of time and was able to eke stuff out because I wasn't rushing like that. While it's better, I think, to practice and stuff like that, I think approaching the mindset like it's the first time and double checking your work is super good and super important. And I think that the reason personally that it comes at the beginning and the end of like a lifespan of a deck knowledge or whatever i mean obviously always growing but like area where you feel like you kind of really have knowledge of the deck versus when you really really do is that when you're early you have to double check your work because you're not sure if you're coming to right conclusions and then later on i have so much more knowledge and core like how the games play play out what my role for the cards are in the matchup that i can then double check it with a more fine tooth comb in that sort of way you know does this strategically make sense and like with all the information i have and i can do a better job of that we're in the middle i kind of don't do that but i should be so yeah. that's your question yeah I, I think i do it and i think it's a bad habit to be in that middle stage and you know kind of rushing through turns or whatever or not giving them the full attention they deserve yeah i, I wish i could play every event like the way that you had to play that like sometimes i feel that way it's kind of also i think why for a long time, I, like, preferred sealed events to, like, playing constructed events for, like, years of my magic career is because, like, you have to show up and think through all these things from scratch every time. You're making all the decisions very actively, and you're not super familiar with it. Mm -hmm. But I, I fall in that trap all the time, so I think it's, you know, a really important thing always to remind yourself that you should think through all your decisions like it's the first time. All of them are, not, are new situations and stuff. It's funny. I remember the first time I ever played the Phoenix deck was in Modern. I had switched to it like very last minute. It was a very similar spot. And I lost double win-ins for top eight. And then the next time I played a Phoenix deck was yesterday where I lost double win-ins for top eight. So what I've learned is that uh, I hate Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> no, I took my time with that too. I was thinking about that. I was like, yeah, yesterday when I was playing Phoenix, I was taking a long time to think through the lines and everything, especially in the earlier rounds, just to make sure that like, am I thinking about all the cards I can do? This deck is so different than the modern deck. I have this weird end game with Galvanic and time walks and blah, 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 blah. 
And it was very similar when I first played Phoenix in Modern, where it's like, okay, how do I optimize these cantrips as best as possible to get the most chance to see a Phoenix or flip my thing, et cetera, et cetera. Let's move on to our main topic though, and that is going to be talking about Pioneer. Pioneer had a really big shakeup, just like Modern, where Luris got banned. We had talked about the format a little bit before that, about two or three weeks, and then we kind of mentioned some thoughts when the banning happened. But we're going to kind of walk back from where we were before and try and walk to the current day about everything happening in Pioneer. And the biggest thing that's happened that's changed since we last really dug into it on the show is Jeskai Ascendancy is an unplayable deck from being one of the best decks. If Maybe not the best, maybe it was the best, hard to say, but from clearly a solid, like, no one can judge you choice to, like, what are you doing? In just a couple weeks. And Abe, why is that happening? How is that such a big change with just Luris and Kamigawa coming into the format? Kamigawa really enabled a few decks that are kind of natural predators to the Ascendancy game plan. One of the places where Ascendancy really struggled is against decks that are just packed full of interaction and that can really fight over their card advantage and punish them for not putting a bunch of threats down. Or their threats being like, I'm going to place Jessica Ascendancy and then wait and fight over the spell. Like, that's always been kind of a tough thing to fight through. Blue-White being one of the best decks right now really makes that difficult. March of Otherworldly Light really helped out as well. Yeah, An entirely new answer that is just fantastic against the card you're trying to stick and be like, oh, well, this is going to be hard for you to remove, so now I have a little traction on the board because I Mm -hmm. pushed the game to this point where I could make you not fight over it. It's really tough. But also just overall people, um, not not only do all of the decks naturally have kind of coalesced towards a, um, a metagame that's just naturally hostile to the Ascendancy deck, they all started playing more interaction. A lot of the aggro decks that could maybe race it got a little better. It, it's just kind of like a, a flood of small things and then a couple of big things like March of the Otherworldly Light that took away a lot of its ability to be the best expressive iteration deck on top of its mana already being kind of a little shaky at times so like all these things just added up and you're better off playing phoenix because of the matchup spread if you want to play an expressive iteration deck so that's where people have kind of gone yeah i think you kind of hit the nail on the head there with that deck and before we hop into phoenix i think the other big deck that was kind of around that point and on the show you know kane kind of mentioned and we talked about how lotus field is more of like a, a pocket choice or whatever and i still think while like it can still do that. I think the things we just mentioned about uh, Ascendancy are true for Lotus Field as well. And it has the hate cards that are kind of more lights outy. I feel like that's another reason we haven't seen Lotus Field. I believe one copy did uh, top the team event, but ultimately I think it had a really underperforming weekend for how uh, untouched and, and strong that can be as the Tron in the format. I know it's tough if you go and like, if you're really into Pioneer and you go and look at the Magic Online results all the time, You'll see the deck pop up quite a bit, but the metagame on Magic Online moves so much faster than the paper metagame, and there's so many more positions where, like, oh, it's the perfect weekend for Lotus Field, or, like, all of the blue-white decks are starting to get pushed towards being built to beat each other, so they're not packing as many Damping Spheres or Narsets or, you know, whatever the hate that they need is. Like, you'll see the deck do well, but it's really hard to bank on for paper where everything moves so differently because there's not as many events like we said this scg was the first two big paper of it like pioneer events that have since happened. The, the last scg with pioneer yeah before exactly. covid yeah it, it was two years since the last big paper one i heard a lot of people talk about how like this is stuff i had before where the challenger deck came out you know and stuff like that so it, it affects things you know obviously it's not swaying huge swaths of stuff obviously people will buy cards to get a good deck but uh yeah it's changed things up a lot but let's go back into phoenix there for a second because it, it is kind of the best expressive iteration deck and the deck that was like already one of the best decks in pioneer we talked about it a lot on that episode so i don't want to spend too much time i did play this deck this last weekend i feel like it is really really good i ended up playing it for the 5k i played winota in the main event because that's what i had and then i had to return some winota cards and so after i had scrambled to get a deck i scrambled to get a new deck luckily my friend jay was able to give me his very nice version of it uh, that deck is really strong it seems really powerful in the metagame it's a lot about creatures and s- stuff and then your Arclight Phoenixes are worse than they ever have been against Blue White, but you still have enough game, especially post board, where you can kind of put them in these awkward spots. Where I really like Phoenix, and I think it's the de facto deck to beat. But I think a lot of people think that of Winota, which we'll get to in a second. But I don't know how you feel about Phoenix, but I, I think it's quite good. I lost two win and ends for top eight of the 5K, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I 
obviously when you lose whatever when you're just kind of spot you're going to be pretty happy about it but really early on in the playing the deck i was regretting not playing or finding it for the day one and just talking about how powerful it was and talking to people like piper pal about her deck list it was just like wow like this deck is really really good i kind of feel the same way about phoenix and pioneer as i do about uh phoenix and historic oddly enough like i feel like it's that deck that's if you're gonna play something you want to play something that you know will be good your, your matches gonna be really not polarized you're gonna play a lot of matches that are they could go either way but maybe you're favored in a bunch of them and like unfavored in only a couple it's the perfect deck for that because your game plan is very generic you have the option to control the board through your cheap removal spells you have card advantage to kind of fight with the mid-range decks through treasure crews and stuff, you've got the temporal trespass angle, you've got counter magic out of the sideboard to fight against things on the stack if you need to. You just have so many tools, and you're able to be proactive enough that you're kind of like the best middle-of-the-range strategy. I don't want to say mid-range because you're not quite a mid-range deck. You know, a not-aggressive but not-controlling deck, you can play both roles very well, kind of aggro control it's, it's like, it's not a deck that I enjoy playing a lot. It, it's kind of samey a lot of the time, oh, but that's because board. it's so good. What you get out of that is that you play that deck the same way every time, and you like set up the same positions, and you see it all happen. And at the end of it, you're usually winning. You know, I, I think in the same way that the historic historic Phoenix deck we saw the set championship episode last week, it didn't really perform great, but it didn't perform terrible. It was in this high level field. The only difference is that Paper Pioneer is a lot more like ladder than it is like a set championship. And so all of the times that you would play Phoenix on ladder, if you're a historic gamer, and be like this deck's awesome, it's super good, why would I play anything else? It probably has game against everything, it'll be fine, is the way it actually is when you play a Paper Pioneer event, and that deck does have game against everything, and does have so much range to how it's built, that if you're really on top of it, it's like almost always either the best or second best, best deck to be playing for a weekend. I think there's like a lot of board-centricness, which we'll talk about as we move through these things, and having Thing in the Ice be such a big part of your plan and decks like Winota, which we're going to segue into right now, just don't really have a hard answer to it. But luckily, Winota does have another real big strength, Abe, and that's just being the best Llanowar Elf deck in the format with the best combo sort of burst wins available. And also, this deck got a huge upgrade with Fable of the Mirror Breaker, one of the new sagas that's been storming on the scene since the set championship. I had that card in my Pioneer Winota deck at the main event, and it was very very good the winota deck has like two really big problems the first is you need a high amount of like extra mana things because you operate on sort of a light land base and you kind of need to have your creatures like your elves can put your winota in play but ideally you want to actually attack with one so like you can turn through winota but then they'll like spot remove your elf even if it's late and then you have another turn to answer the winota before it's a problem so fable is like nothing you can play on three that enables the winota and gets you a little extra mana too if maybe you're lacking lands and then the filter on it where you rummage you discard two draw two or as many as you want i found to be super helpful like i played against a bunch of blue white control on saturday just being able to turn my brutal cathars or extra lands or you know i had uh, the tovlar's hunt master the big six six that makes two wolves and i was like oh i i'll never resolve this to an absorb so i'm just going to discard it now and try and find even a brutal cathar anything i can like just sort of pressure them with and having that sort of asset to the deck was so so nice when your deck is half mana creatures half hitters it's really good to be able to have a card that is all of the above right like all parts of that saga are either a part of your plan a and like i want to have this winota enabler or it helps you find another copy of winota or the first copy of winota or just the threat you need if you have a start that's like land or elves on one play this thing on two you just have way more opportunities to have your best draw super good consistency card and the deck overall is you know we is obviously really powerful i don't think anyone who's listening who's ever played with the card or against the card knows how powerful that card is so it's really it's really easy to imagine that any deck that's able to play a competent game plan beyond just putting Winota in play, that's able to, you know, the Brutal Cathars are really good at interacting with a lot of the decks in the format. A lot of decks are really Battlefield-centric. You know, even just ramping into Essica's Chariot or Tovlar's Huntmaster is a power level appropriate for a deck if the deck can also do other powerful things. So it just has a lot of really good tools at all stages of, of the way it plays out. You know, you can kind of come out the gate early with a, a couple of mana creatures and then an accelerated four or five drop. You can have that Winota in play and then immediately end the game by just putting this Tovlar's Huntmaster in play or kind of having something that smooths the draw while being... If you had Seasoned Pyromancer in that deck that was a single red, you would play that card 100% of the time, right? That card would just be so good. And that's basically the role that the Fable of Mirror Ricker plays. 
Was there anything cool that you could do with um, with the backside of the saga? The cool thing, quote unquote, is if you have two of them, you target each other, and then on your turn, like at the end of their turn, you do it. Now you have four of them, and then you target anything. Uh, I used it on Voice of Resurgence a bunch. Especially when I thought my opponent had the Wandering Emperor, and it was like, well, if you kill these, you're in trouble. If you cast things, you're in trouble. I believe it sacrifices them. Yeah, you do sacrifice. You just make an army of those strong elementals. Yeah, that's that's really sick. All those things are pretty cool. Against one control player, I had Elite Spellbinder in play with it about to flip, and they were. I had Elite Spellbinder them already and took their board wipe i missed on uh, a land do i just aether gust this mirror breaker or do i like hold it for the winota and i was sandbagging a winota at this point and i like had an elf or whatever and they decided to like in my draw step go for the mirror breaker because they were afraid like yeah i just don't have many wraths left in my deck you're just gonna hit me a spellbinder every turn it will end and that sort of pressure is really big on people and just even brutal cathar clearing the way for a turn like obviously they get the creature back but if it's something like a thing in the ice that's really big, like just resetting the counters. Yeah, I mean, you're just oh. flicker-wisping them, right? That card's really good. Uh, but yeah, so it's kind of like Winota gets to be the best creature mid-range deck that also has a combo. You know, it's, this is a bit of an extreme example for the boomers out there, but it's kind of like a pod deck. Someone said that. There's like, your deck's like pod. And I, th- and I didn't play with pod. It was like Sahili Cat. Yeah. yeah, we had Rogue Refiners and Whirly Virtuosos and stuff, and you yeah, had like this like Hydra, good plan. Yeah. yeah, the good plan B. It was kind of nebulous which one was plan A and plan B. I think it's a little more defined with this yeah, deck because like, Winota is so much better than the other things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Eska's Chariot Fast is really good. They had, they had to nerf that card in Alchemy. That card holds up. And one of the things I really noticed is, like, if they're light on removal, you'll, you can kind of tell when they're tanking about it because they're light and they're not just trying to keep the board under control. You can use things like Eska Chariot to force the way for your Winota or your Voice of Resurgences, which, like, tax their removal in a really heavy way this deck is pretty good uh and one of the better decks in pioneer but while there were some big innovations we just talked about not super duper different than it was before kamigawa before the lurus ban and the last sort of deck along this lines that's like been kind of good hasn't changed too too much is the mono green festivity decks i want to talk about quickly because i know you are a pretty big fan of those when they came out and one of them top aided i I believe technically the scg con was a top six listeners it wasn't a top eight Uh, i'm under the opinion that if you got seventh or eighth you top eight in an open you do what you want there but i believe seventh or eighth place was a mono green festivities deck and that deck i I saw it play a little bit and was very impressive and kind of does its thing pretty well in a format where i think it maybe shouldn't be and it's kind of confusing at times so my experience playing against the deck and kind of like figuring it out when I was playing a bunch of the Luris format, the first thing I noticed was just how much more consistent the deck was able to be when it was like all of your Nissa games are your best games, I feel like, right? The games where you have Nissa who shakes the world, you have a bunch of mana, you're able to reset, but the amount of times that you might fizzle because you have yourself set up for mana and then you don't get to do anything because you don't have your payoff. It was pretty high. A Storm the Festival, like not only does it make your deck better because you get to play more copies of things that hit your your big threats, but you also get to flash them back. Like there's a lot of times where the pattern is you'll storm the festivities, hit like a Nissa or a Kiora with a little bit of mana floating, untap your Nykthos, and then go again. And the explosiveness of that on top of the fact that it's also just, you know, the other best Lana Elves deck. Having a bunch of threats that are hard for decks that are trying to answer creature decks to answer. Old Growth Troll is a great source of devotion that doesn't die ever, really. Kiora is really, really impossible to kill. And you have a bunch of permanents you can deploy that fuel your devotion and maybe even, like, slow down an aggressive opponent that push you forward to casting your Haymakers. And all of your Haymakers play in a way that's really good against you know, the massive amounts of Supreme Verdict or like, you know, Arc Lake Phoenix has a bunch of like shock effects to kind of control the board or Thing in the Ices. And you can kind of go way over the top of that and slam dunk on it. And Festival is just a big part of enabling that and making sure you, you know, find the stuff you need all the time. I think Karn is also a pretty big part of it. It shuts off a bunch of random things in the format a little bit bigger before the Luris ban because being a Karn deck meant that you could shut down all of the Anvil decks, which there were a lot more of. But yeah, I think the deck is like... A super good foil to kind of all the, the control decks present and that plays to the board in a bunch of ways that are good at punishing that kind of gameplay. It's a green deck that's good against getting Supreme Verdicted. It, it plays the board with a bunch of Planeswalkers and somehow finds a way to outvalue decks that are trying to just one for them efficiently, really consistently. And all it really needs is mana to get set up, and it's really good at that. 
What do you think about the Spirits deck? So Spirits is the deck that our teammate Bob and Cheese was going to play had he not been uh, reined in. And I, I think Spirits, before I kind of pass it over here to you, is just a totally fine deck that has some pretty good draws to it. And things like Watcher of the Sphere are pretty big for this deck being playable. But I'm not super in love with it, but I also don't hate it. Spirits has always been a tribal deck that has been playable in the format. Spell Queller is a really, really powerful interactive tool. If you like have a curve and you back it up with a spell queller, you collect a company into a spell queller and something else. It's really hard to lose those games. If you're familiar with the way the deck played in modern, it's really similar. You just have a bunch of flying power and that's too much for a lot of decks that are trying to fight you on the board to beat. I'm not a huge fan of the deck because I think that the Wandering Emperor makes it more difficult for you to always line up your spell quellers or collect company as well. I think that the added flash aspect of the control decks and a lot of decks playing either spells that cost, they're important, that cost significantly less than Spell Queller, or cost five or more. The best time to cast Spell Queller is obviously when your opponent's casting a four drop, because that's when you're getting the most tempo out of your Queller. But when all of the spells are much cheaper than that, the decks are out efficiencying you, it gets kind of awkward. A lot of your threats don't stand on their own well. So I think that when the format is really creature-centric and like board-building-centric, the deck is actually really good. But... With the deck that kind of broke out this weekend at the team event, the Five Feel Like Humans deck, I think that might be a better deck at having tools to do what the Spirits deck is doing. And I think Spellcaller is also kind of at a low right now with the way the format's gone. Let's just pivot straight into the Humans deck. Uh, you know, the other tribal deck, like you mentioned, the other kind of similar to modern deck uh, in a lot of ways. What do you think of the Humans deck? Because I kind of like it. There's some things I don't love, but I do think I have to kind of accept. I think this is the problem a lot of people have, by the way, is that Pioneer is not modern. Pioneer is not any other format. It's Pioneer. You gotta, it's the confines of the cards we have here. It doesn't matter how mopey or something looks. It matters how it plays in this format. So what do you think about the uh, Pioneer Humans deck? So there's a lot of decks in the format, like Mono Red, you know, the Llanowar Elf decks. Their turn one is always going to be just something dinky that sets up for the rest of their game plan. And usually it's about some sort of speed. I think that the Humans deck is more about size than speed, which gives it a natural edge to those matchups. And I think that it also has a ton of great tools against the decks that are trying to work against that. Like Reflector Mage against Thing in the Ice is something that anyone who played Modern during uh, the Faithless Looting days either remembers fondly as a Reflector Mage player or unfondly as a Thing in the Ice player. The ways that your deck can interact on the board while still you know, pushing the ball forward, that's very similar to the way it is uh, in Modern, except you don't have the same kind of blistering draws with Aether Vile or Noble Hierarch. You're kind of more confined to playing one thread at a time, but the things they play like Experiment 1, you know, Thraven Inspector, Thalia's Lieutenant, there are a bunch of really good humans in the format, and finding ways to leverage that, even if it's less explosive, less of what you're used to, things like Manus Rider and Reflector Major are still some of the best things you can play for three mana in the format, you know, as far as threats go. I knew people who, like, had explored it over, over time, but had kind of moved away from it, and to see this deck kind of break out in the way it did has been really cool. I think it's, like, a really good new edition of decks that are, like, finding new ground, right? Like, it's easy for easy to build your mono-red decks, it's easy to build your blue-white control decks, but it's kind of hard to find the right mix of five-color mana and five-color threats, but this deck really hit a good niche of that, and I think is, like, the right spot to be just bigger than the other creature decks, a little smaller, maybe, that like to get under the, the control deck still. Like, whereas Winota kind of it plays sometimes that kind of game, but worse, hoping to win out of them. And then if that doesn't work, you're leaning on, oh, well, maybe I'll cast this Huntmaster or this Chariot and be able to like close the game that way. It might be a little awkward and your, your mishmash beats, but this is just all in on that kind of game where you're playing to the board with creatures. You know, props to Max McFetty for figuring out the list that he figured out. And um, that deck is super sweet and probably a, a pretty big contender to stay. I think they'll be hard for everyone to police everything. And I think Manus Rider against Wandering Emperor, especially as a matchup, one-on-one, -on -one, card to card, is a huge part of that deck being really good right now. I agree, and I, I like everything you said about humans. Uh, I think we should talk about the blue-white control deck, because you talk about humans having a breakout weekend. Blue-white control did as well, especially on Modo. We saw the PTQ have four blue-white control players in top eight. We mentioned it a little bit last week on the episode, talking about the Wandering Emperor ad nauseum. This deck is, I think, very good in Pioneer. It really needs to kind of build its deck to the current metagame. So we kind of saw where 
when the Anvil decks were still around with Luris, that we were playing things like Farewell pretty easily. And while things like uh, Phoenix, I think, might trick you into playing Farewell, and they kind of did me too, after having played more as a Phoenix player, I think actually that sort of card maybe needs to get moved away from. But things like figuring that stuff out is super important to the week-to-week -week sort of configuration. And March of the Lordly Light, the Wandering Emperor, these two cards are omega big upgrades for this deck and have kind of really changed things. And there's so many different things you can play too to like interact on two from Fateful Absence for Opposing Walkers to some people are playing Azorius Charm again to Dovin Vito's Hardcore to fight different angles, which is like, even against things like Winoda hitting a Chariot so big. I think the blue-white deck is quite good still and um it's a powerful impressive deck I i'm curious what you seem to think about it looking at the breakdown of the metagame for the team event it was the most played deck mm -hmm. if i recall correctly by like a pretty big margin and that's not outside of what i expected i think um it's in a good spot right now the control pieces are all there and the wandering emperors helped the deck a lot teferi is obviously still a very very good magic card the tools are all there but I also think that what, what we saw in paper over the weekend of like this deck and Winota being out in, in force, people haven't played a lot of paper Pioneer in a while. I think that the fact that the blue-white lists have to be so week-to-week -week on Magic Online is showing a bit of weakness there in the archetype overall. I know people who I know who are like, you know, I win with it one week, I play another weekly or whatever, and I feel like I cannot win a match at all because people are all super prepared, they all have hate. The decks are all really good against blue-white. So I think it's not like a, a super dominant thing like the numbers would suggest if you're someone who saw that huge percentage of the field playing blue-white. I don't think it's actually that dominant. But I do think that for the time being, it's kind of being put on the rest of the format to find a way to beat blue-white as often it is. And that hasn't come around yet. I think the humans is like a good first step. I think there are decks that are, are doing a good job of it. But it's kind of humans and Winota like world, I think is more... A thing where it's easy to build the blue light deck it's easy to build the winota deck those are very obvious powerful things to build around to make a cohesive deck with that weren't touched by anything blue is really strong i don't know if it's like dominant the word i would use is trickier than a lot of people think it is to kind of get yourself in the spots like you don't have a lot of tools that lights out people like you can put people in squeezes where like they make the wrong choice against like a deluge versus wandering emperor versus settle or versus like maybe an absorb or something like that like a, a, those kind of spots and those can have some light outish turns but you really don't win very quickly or easily and things like shark typhoon dream trawler holebreaker horror having those main deck answers that can do something like that are very hard to know which one's right like you kind of talked about the onlineness and they matter so so much holebreaker horror is almost unbeatable if you can resolve it, but there are so many matchups where you, if you get to seven mana, like a Shark Typhoon would have won just as much, but a Shark Typhoon won't win you those other things. And it's like, okay, well, how do you pick the right spots for these things? You know, where do they go in the main side? And it asks a whole, whole lot of you in a way that sometimes I think other control decks don't quite do it. Like in modern, you kind of have your stuff that'll win the game and you just kind of do it over and over and over again. And you kind of line your answers and your sideboard cards up more. And I think... Pioneer has a much bigger challenge of actually like, okay, but you have to close the game out now. Something that kind of defines Pioneer right now and kind of gives Blue White that strength is that a lot of the decks are, that are really successful and were really played this weekend were decks that have a singular card that they're trying to resolve for the most part. You know, like Lotus Field has singular points where you interacting with them is, or Lewisfield doesn't have singular points where interacting is really good because a lot of it's difficult to interact with a lot of land drops. So like Blue White struggles with that, which is part of why, you know, online Lotusfield will do really well and Blue White's doing really well. Decks like Winota, you kind of know the spell you're trying to get after when it comes to your absorbs or, you know, your vetoes or whatever removal or counter spells you have. Those one linchpin cards are kind of the big breadwinners for those decks. And so playing a deck that's able to cleanly and efficiently trade with those is a really big draw and is really good for the blue-white deck. But that's also why decks like Mono Green can give blue-white trouble because it has so many of those cards, it overloads it. And so playing like this Absorb to Fairy deck that wants to take a bunch of turns where it's ahead, you kind of lose out on the opportunity to do that because you're actually kind of thin on answers overall to be able to have the cards to put people in these squeezes and you're hoping the cards like the Wandering Emperor and like Teferi have this time to change the game so that you can use your one or two or maybe three counter spells you find to, to really lock the game up. And I think that, you know, decks like Lotus Field, decks like Humans, 
uh, decks that are really redundancy based do really good at preying on this because not any one singular card that they're playing and it being countered really takes them apart but i think that for the time being in pioneer that's certainly the case for a lot of decks and so blue white's been really good but i think that you know as the format develops more i think we'll see that kind of change Speaking of change, there's one last deck that we haven't really talked about too much that was all over the place, and I guess it's technically two, and that's Black Red Anvil and Jund. Those decks have sort of poofed. They lost Luris. Jund less so lost Luris. It's just kind of, you know, had the Anvil stuff, but not really showing up anywhere. I feel like these decks are just a little too mopey and aren't good enough at beating Winota or the human stuff or the control stuff to actually get across the finish line and are they're too fairish with nothing that's like a little unfair like they don't have something like a chandra to really take over the game and like give them that sort of oomph or have some sort of like croxa end game that's like runs them out of resources what, what do you think about those decks in the format yeah i think that before the luris ban um especially with synthesizer entering the format the black red anvil deck and the jun deck were kind of in this position where jun was trying to be better at what the Anvil deck was doing than the Anvil deck and winning the mirrors kind of with Karn and having access to more copies of the cards that mattered while also being better in some other places uh, at the cost of playing not Luris and not a super sleek game plan. And the Black Red deck losing Luris kind of lost all of the reason it had to be playing the super sleek game plan. And you could no longer do things like looping Blood Tithe Harvesters or Synthesizers or Terrarians that generate huge card advantage over time with Luris. That was kind of, you know, thrown out the window when that card gets banned. Uh, actually, just over the weekend, Jabberwocky won a challenge with a Mayhem Devil, Black Red, like, Synthesizer, Oni Cult Anvil, Sacrifice deck. Like, it looks really rough. It had a, a bunch of, you know, fours and twos. Like, the sideboard was kind of, like, four copies of this, a few copies of this. Really, really not a lot of nuance in the deck building, but it did... I believe win the challenge yeah i think there's still a lot of promise in that shell it, it's having to adopt another angle right like this mayhem devil cauldron familiar uh which is of an angle gives it a, a different dimension to play with the oni cult anvils and stuff and so i think that anvil and synthesizer and you know all of these like cantropy artifacts are good and you know have room but those decks have suffered the most from the lurus banks i think they were the biggest users of Luris overall, you know, like unlike in modern where there's tons and tons of options at such low mana costs to interact, that's really not the case with Pioneer. The loss of Luris actually hurt this archetype and hurt the mid-range archetypes so much more than it did in modern was such a bigger loss to the format because Luris was kind of still existing in a healthy space, even though that was obviously unsustainable because the card is messed up. Those decks went from being, you know, top of the heap the biggest players to kind of falling off but we are starting to see something rise out of the ashes there that's kind of exciting i think maybe in the next month or two we might start to see more and more exploration of that although it seems still a little in my opinion a little susceptible and weak to a little bit of hate in a way that the Luris decks weren't they are having to start from scratch and finding their their punch you know like it's obvious you can play a deck with thoughtsies and fatal push and cheap interactive spells and making these blood tokens and being able to use them with oni cult anvil to drain and make a board presence that's all powerful and cat oven's powerful but finding the rest of that that seems to be like the the hard part that's kind of being struggled with i think this mayhem Dell direction is really cool though might i suggest a guldacott pivot for this deck where we play four slaughter games four stain the mind four necromancia on our sideboard and just uh get everybody did you see where he top into ptq with this in pioneer once and i think that's also <laughs> to my earlier point about why blue white's good right now because you can do that to people. If you, if you don't know, all those cards are the ones where it's like uh, you name a card and they remove all the copies. And there's a uh, classic story where a Magic Online grinder, Guldakad, who's very good, uh, during the, I believe it was Lotus Field Arclight Phoenix metagame, where they were just the most popular decks by a bunch. No one was trying in Pioneer. He played a red-black mid-range deck that just had like card advantage cards. And then post-board, his game plan against those decks was to bring in those 12, and he would name Thing in the Ice and then Arclight Phoenix. And then he would just have to like beat the creature land. And that was it, you know. <laughs> and this like so that, that and same thing against Lotus Field. You name Lotus Field and they lose the game. An interesting approach for sure. But uh, yeah, it is curious to kind of see like how did these red blacks figure out their kind of juke their sort of pivot. People have been trying basically everything that's working for every other deck. I've seen Fable the Mirror Breaker. You know this Mayhem Devil stuff. I've seen there were a bunch of the lists that were kind of the Luris lists. 
mm-hmm. black red mid range deck that did well in uh, at the events in India over the weekend with like graveyard trespasser and Kalidus and kind of your more traditional like standard good value creatures plus removal and interaction. There's so much room there, and honestly, there's just so much room in Pioneer in general to be explored. It's part of why it's one of my favorite formats right now. There's decks like Enigmatic Incarnation, which obviously now have a bunch of options that haven't even come close to being explored yet, but I'm sure people will be putting in the science with that. I know there's like Fires of Vengeance decks. Yeah, let's talk about Fires real quick, because just Dom uh, got top four of the 5K with it. Uh, What do you think about that sort of like Fires Transmogrify, Agent Treachery type shell? I'm not sure that Transmorging into Agent Treachery is the strongest things you can do with Fires, but I, I also haven't done a lot of like research into that specific deck. I know it's a deck that's been around for a while though. Kind of like, you know, it goes like fires a Seeker's Chariot on some turns, plays like a bunch of really, really solid early game uh, interactive spells like Anger the Gods and Chain to the Rocks. Uh, and really is just focused on controlling the game and then transmorging a birth and latest token into taking your thing and snowballing from that. That was had like some planeswalkers in it, right? Like Teferi. Yeah, the big innovation to the deck recently is that I got the Wandering Emperor which allows you to have, like, an EOT transmog thing that you can make while also doubling as, like, you know, a, a removal spell. So it's like, yeah, yeah not die. Good. Yeah, cash in for a token, get an agent treachery, take your other thing. I'm schmoovin' on you. You know, there's just lots of powerful cards, especially throne cards like Fires, <laughs> that are in the format and are still able to be played. And I think that, you know, the more that people are playing Pioneer, and I think you said that there were a bunch of people, I don't know if you said this before the show or on the show, where people were like, oh, I don't know if I'm excited about Pioneer or not. But I think that a lot of people that I saw had really positive reactions to the format and really wanted to play it more and really excited by it. I think the more that those people engage with Pioneer, now that they maybe own decks or they you know know people who want to play for the next event, they had a good time playing it, they get their, their shop to run weeklies. This format can really grow and there's a lot of room for that. There's a lot of room for innovation and a lot of room for exploration. I think it's like one of the best formats in Magic right now to be brewing in. Because it was off the air, but we I talked to a bunch of my opponents because, you know, I played two days of Pioneer. I was talking all about Pioneer because on the show, I do like to joke that nobody cares about Pioneer. And the sentiment from all of my opponents except one was, I don't really like Pioneer. But I think that a lot of it has to do with, and I was listening to them talk, is I think that Pioneer is just not quite meant for those people. I would ask them, like, what do you like to play? And the answer was almost always Modern, which is the most popular turn of format, so that's kind of expected. And I would ask them, like, what do you like in Modern? You know, and a lot of the times it was like, ooh, I love, like, these Ragavan decks, or I love, like, these kind of hyper-efficient decks, or these berserk kind of combo-y decks. Pioneer's not really trying to be that. So if the things you don't like about Modern, and I know there are a lot of people who don't like Modern. The, funny enough, the one person who was excited about Pioneer was very happy to tell me when I said, what do you love about Pioneer? Because I just asked the inverse question. Uh, he said how different it was from Modern. You just gotta come with it. It's its own format, it's its own thing. And it has a lot of room to explore. If you, I know a lot of people love brewing and tinkering with decks, and they get kind of bored, for lack of a better term, when the format gets figured out. Pioneer might look like it's figured out with things like Five Color Humans, Winota, Blue Eye Control, Phoenix. And I would argue that we kind of have these pillars and we're at the stage where it's like, okay, can we knock down these pillars? We're not, we haven't solved the format. We are kind of forming the format right now. And with no real eyes on it for a little bit, it's going to be really cool to see how the format progresses and evolves on Magic Online. And I hope it does continue to grow in paper and stuff like that because it is the most high power without free spells format or the best high power without free spell formats in my opinion i think it's more fun than historic check it out i I think give it a shot if your local game stores run it you know those challenger decks like if you buy the spirits one i'm pretty sure you're like 20 bucks away assuming you own the shock lands you're 20 bucks away from like the tier one like the tier 1.5 spirit deck i think it's pretty close to that with the lotus field deck too lotus field i think i i think you literally only need two two new lands and then you have like most of the list of people play nowadays. And then I was looking at the Arclight deck because I liked it. I was like, I probably should own a Pioneer deck. And I owned a lot of those cards already. So for me, it was only like 80 bucks to finish off if I wanted to do it. But it's also only $300, which is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But in the grand scheme of things, for an eternal format like Magic, if Pioneer picks up, you're going to be pretty happy. And yeah, that's compared what to your deck- Scalding Tarns and, and one Ragavan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you play Magic, you kind of have to accept it, unfortunately. So... Yeah, I don't know. I think Pioneer is in a pretty sweet place. I will say this. The games were pretty fun. More so, too, when I was playing Phoenix because I had a little more play to it. 
and I was in a lot of like tricky situations where were kind of cool to overcome things. I felt it was fun to play Winota and kind of be like, okay, how am I going to put the pressure on you the hardest without overextending? Or how am I going to like get you to like use your man in this way? And like, I got to play against a blue white player where like I had like an nothing to do till turn two, but I was almost positive they had sensors. So it's like, okay, how can I like beta sensor versus like, should I just like wait a turn? And I decided just like play all my things delayed by a turn. And I eventually got them to like, you know, cycle their sensor and I got to double spell them and just blow them out. It's really fun gameplay when you have to play with cards that exchange with cards in somewhat efficient ways, I should say, that use mana. And it reminds me how much the core engine of magic, how good it is. And it feels like modern doesn't always do that sometimes, which I know some people prefer. Uh, and I, I do prefer too. I, I love modern. So um, 121 people played a, played a Pioneer 5K and you were one of them. You last two people who signed up and pushed us up around. Goats. What? Greatest of all time. They I signed up because of them. <laughs> they signed up. To, you should have won more matches. They I, I signed up to right. play Pioneer over any other offering that day. Mm. And for that, I stand. Let's go to our Patreon question. If you want to support the show, it will always be free. But you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg to support the show. You go there, you get to kind of get some cool benefits. You get to join the Discord at a certain tier. We have a lot of conversations going all of my uh, deck lists are up there. One of my friends and Spencer's friend, Matt Kling, former host of the show, he actually went and ripped our money pile deck list so that for the team event that Spencer and him played. And uh, they, I believe, ended up splitting, I think they chopped top four or split the finals, something along those lines. Uh, and he was just raving about the money pile list. So you get stuff like that. Uh, ahead of time, you also get to ask questions, have conversations, but you get to ask these questions on the show when they're picked. You get to win Oasis Game Store credit, our sponsor. And so Adrian says, for his Patreon question of the week, what's your favorite standard deck of all time? What's your least favorite standard deck of all time? Abe, I think it'd be good if we talk about our favorites first, then our least favorite each. So I think my favorite's team or energy. I'm just going to say that my favorite is um, Jeskai Black from the part uh, oh, that wound up being dominated by Rally Ancestors. Love me some Soulfire Grandmaster. I don't think I say that enough, and I say it a lot. Dig Through Time, Manus Rider, it was just everything. Like, you had to maneuver your mana base, and you had a bunch of cards that were just good mid-range cards and good card advantage. Exchanged really well, and the games were just super fun to play out because you were playing with a bunch of sweet gold cards, which was awesome, and card advantage. But since that's me talking about Jessica, like, why don't you talk about Team Ranger and what you like about it? Well, it's funny. I think I had the, the actual maybe the correct answer, I had forgotten it when I had read this question earlier, because for a long, long time, Team Energy was my favorite. I really liked the resource management of energy, even though it's a little taxing. I thought it led to some cool games. I liked the grindiness exchange on the ground. I thought it was really cool. Like, how tall do we go versus how lean do we go? You know, like, things like Confiscation Coup, the Scarab God, Glory Bringer. Like, how do we get our edges switching up week to week without, you know, giving up too much to blue-white? And I thought the individual games were pretty fun. Uh, but I think actually, and it might not have been its whole lifespan, but I've really loved Rogues, actually. That might actually be my favorite answer. My answer for my favorite standard deck of all time is Rogues when it's the BFZ set. So the, when Omnath came out, just that standard. It was fun the whole time, but the one where it was right at the beginning was one of my favorite things. I played that in so many online SCGs. I loved playing that deck. All your cards were so tricky and cheap, and you got to play... A whole thing and it really taught me a lot about you know mana efficiency over oomph to your cards what's your least favorite it's kind of close it's between uh four color energy with the scarab god <laughs> <laughs> oh and then the mono green ramp deck from that uh the standard that i played just got black and rally that like ugin ulamog jotty offshoot nissus pilgrimage just like a ton of just putting lands into play and then casting big dumb idiots. Cast triggers make me so miserable and I lost so many games where if their card didn't say when you cast the spell on it, like I would have had the game locked up against a ramp deck traditionally, it, it drove me up a wall. I could not stand it. That's fair. That That's valid, King. So my gut response was the Marvel part of standard. Team or energy stuff, but it's like Marvel and you're like putting in Emrakul specifically. Less so the Ulamog one was fine or whatever, it just wasn't actually that good. But as I'm trying I'm trying to think about all the standard formats I've ever played, and I think that my actual answer might be I kind of enjoyed playing the Sphinx's Revelation decks, but I don't like how long and 
non-winconable the decks were. Like, yeah, when they when they had elixir, entirely different than when they were playing the deck without elixir or like, like pre Dragon's Maze. All those decks had to play finishers and stuff, and I guess I pre Theros that iteration of the format. Mm-hmm. Where the decks were three colors, I thought all those were really, really cool. Yeah, the Innistrad versions Innistrad. are... There are stories that I'm sure everyone's heard at every LGS if they played around that time of someone, like, losing some rev mirror because their opponent randomly activated a Codex Shredder and, like, milled their opponent's Elixir of Mortality or, like, they just, like, cast it on turn one and then could never lose because neither player had a kill condition. Those decks were bad. I don't know. The mirrors were just kind of like, ugh. Games have to end. Games gotta end. That's so true, King! The patrons know. Spencer asked if we were going to do this question. Mm. That we had to guess what Spencer's answers would be. And then we can check back on it. Okay, so favorite standard versus least favorite. So I know Spencer's least favorite. So I I will let you You know Spencer's least favorite? A hundred percent. If it's not, he's lying on the show. I'm a hundred percent. His favorite is going to be Lotus Cobra, Harrow, Valakut Ramp with Colony Heart Expedition. Just like the old Valakut. I feel like I should give you a little a little extra because I know Spencer a little longer yeah. than you. Yeah, this, just, is, just, this just, is much harder for me than you. Yeah, you much harder. Give you, I'm going to give you a little thing that I'm not even sure is true, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Do you think his Teamer Savage Knuckleblade cute for the Pro Tour deck they worked really hard on had the right numbers might have been his favorite? Because I'm unsure that one kind of sticks out to me as one of the decks. Yeah. I think that... He has he obviously would have a very strong sentimental attack from that deck, and I think that's like if he had a masterpiece, I think that's his masterpiece, you know. Mm. And he talks about it as such, and he reveres it as such. But I think when you talk about a favorite standard deck of all time, it's not just about the deck that you're most proud of or that you performed the best with. It's about the one that you loved. And there is nothing that I've ever heard that man say that makes me think he doesn't love Lotus Cobra, Valakut the Molten Pinnacle, Primeval Titan. And making landfall triggers happen. See, I think he loves all those things, but I don't know if that's my answer. What's your what's what's your think his least favorite is? This is another thing. This is a real segment for the boomers because if you know about playing that Valakut deck, you know Cobblade sucks and oh. is miserable to play against. I if you're playing anything but Cobblade, and even playing Cobblade is kind of miserable to play against when you play a Cobblade mirror. So I think he might go. This is me just feeding into the boomer energy we share. Valakut favorite. Cobblade least favorite. We get, we, get, we get to bring up the taboo board because he's not here this week, Abe, and that's Thalia. I think you might have forgot. <laughs> uh, right? So, yeah. So, here's where I'm at, though. But I, I don't even think it's a Thalia deck. I think it's in that vein. I think it's the green-white mid-range deck that was, like, Voice of uh, Zendikar, uh, Nissa, Gideon, Raptors, Den Protectors, Dromica's oh, Commands. I, I have heard Spencer say a bunch that it's his least favorite deck to play against or with or to be in a format on so many podcasts. Since I started listening, and then he continues to bring it up throughout history. So if that isn't Spencer's least favorite deck, someone is lied to in this situation. That's all <laughs> I know. It, it was it was either me or it was the listeners or Spencer to himself. I, he bring he hates that deck. Times change, man. I, I can see that yeah. being pretty frustrating. I was an idiot for not playing that deck more. Sounds believable. <laughs> Fun fact about that deck, by the way, I was playing locally for fun on my LGS, and I had friends go to the Invitational, and I had. Almost that exact deck, except I wasn't smart enough to figure out to put the pacifist in my deck. The 3-3 yeah, deck. Yeah, Limehole pacifist? Yeah, yeah. So I would, I would lose to aggro decks, and they wouldn't. And one of my LGS guys almost played it. But, and this is before the Pro Tour. It's like the invitation right before. And then he was like, ah, but like I can't beat it or whatever. He just didn't try to fix the problem. And he came back, and he was like, man, I regret not doing it and not spending <laughs> a little time. <laughs> when it comes to favorite deck, though, I think I think your Valakut answer might be right. But one of us has to be the winner the competition and so i think i'm gonna go with the jund format with like olivia voldaren where Ooh, he and his friends all like worked enjoy too yeah because he and the gang all worked really hard they started to get a bunch of good results with it they really understood the metagame and that sort of thing and they kind of pushed it there and so i think memories and stuff like that it's things where we do well whatever and i think that's a a really fun interactive format and he and his friends it was like right at the start of them all popping off fireball so and far seeks baby yeah, it's it's great. So that's my guess. We'll have to catch you next week to see what happened there. But it's time to wrap up the show. Abe, if someone wanted to find you, where can they go? Uh, they can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings. 
Uh, and you can find me and my blog project for tournament reports, especially for someone who went and played at the SCG and you want to tell your story of how you had a great time playing the team event, how you maybe cashed, how you maybe didn't cash, how you played a side event, how you saw the people you hadn't seen in a while, how you had those funny conversations, all those great things. If you want to talk about that and write something about that, have it posted online, go to twitter.com slash treetalesmtg and send me an email for that. Yeah, that's, that's where people can find me. How about you, Mason? Uh, you go to twitter.com with at Mason E. Clark. You can find me right here on Card Kingdom each and every week this week. It's going to be Pioneer. So you might have done some deck lists to go with this if you're a little too lazy to look it up. We've aye, all aye. been there, kings and queens. I would love to write for Abe's thing, but I've got a non-compete clause, so I, I can't do Tree of Tales, so I'm going to need someone else. Maybe Tyler, round five, 5K. Reach out to Abe, maybe. Get in there, you know. Top eight, spoilers. So, hey, make sure to go ahead and do that. And you can find me occasionally on twitch.tv slash Clark, trying to work that into my schedule a bit more. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Make sure to check out the rest of the network. We have Drafting Archetype with Sam Black for all of your limited knowledge and needs. we got Common Knowledge for all your popper needs. Those challenges and stuff always popping off. You want to go check out that stuff. That format is uh, with a new band committee, by the way. That format is schmoovin' when it comes to new content and everything. So you want to make sure you stay up to date on that sort of thing, especially if you have some big, maybe like a popper 2K come up or something in your local area. That's going to do it. We'll see you all next week for another episode of Constructed Criticism.